Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Good morning. My name is Pastor Mark. I'm the discipleship pastor here at New Life, and we're so excited that you came out to join us this morning, especially if you're here for the very first time. New Life was created for you. The service was created for you, and I really mean that. Every week here at New Life, each element of our service, we're thinking about people who are here for the very first time. Each thing that we do in the ways that we prepare Everything about what we do here over the weekends, we're thinking about and praying for people who are here for the first time. So if you're here for the first time today, you are our honored guest. We're so excited that you decided to come out and join us. If you have any questions about what we do, why we do it, don't hesitate to ask a question to anybody who's serving here this weekend or pull aside one of our pastors and ask us. This morning, we are in part two of a 12-week series that spans the summer months on the book of Daniel. And, uh, and we actually have a study guide that goes along through the summer months. And so if you don't have a study guide and you want one, would you raise your hand if you don't have one, but you want one, and one of our ushers will be around to give you a study guide? Raise your hand high. Don't be, don't be afraid. That's fine. Yeah, raise your hand high. Uh, Ross and Dave will be around to make sure you get uh, your hands on a study guide here. So like I said, we're in week two of a 12-week series, and that's not abnormal at New Life. I mean, 12 weeks is a long series, but over the summer months, we typically look at one book of the Bible, and we look chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we study it. Now, what's abnormal is usually what we do is as we look at this book, the Bible, we look at the second portion of it, which we call the New Testament, and we look at one of the books in the New Testament. What we're doing this summer is we're looking in the Old Testament, and when I say Old Testament, what I really mean is it's just the things that recount what happened before the birth, um, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're looking at a passage from the Old Testament, or one of the books of the Old Testament, and that book is Daniel. Now, Daniel is really unique because it's one of the prophets, but it's also a historical narrative, and we're going to see that this morning as we look at Daniel chapter 2. Now, Pastor Chris kicked off this series um, by looking at Daniel chapter 1 last week, and one of the things that he showed us was that we can really connect with and relate to Daniel's story, because Daniel's story is about him and his friends who are exiled in a land called Babylon, and there's a lot of correlations between the culture of Babylon and the culture in modern America right now, and so we're able to kind of relate and connect with him as followers of Jesus in a culture that largely doesn't even recognize that there is a God, or if it does, recognizes many of them. Something else that Pastor Chris pointed out is that each week here at New Life, we have what we call a take-home point. A take-home point is just basically a way for us to take what we're learning here and take it with us and apply it to our lives throughout the week. And so this week is no different. So we're going to have the take-home point up there on the screen. It's the one point I'm going to seek to make this week. It's we are created as glory givers not glory seekers. We are created as glory givers, not glory seekers. 
Now, we're going to see that Daniel in chapter 2 lived this out in a really profound way, in a really big way he lived this out. But before we dive directly into the text, because there is a lot to get through today, there's a lot of verses in chapter 2, what I want to talk about is a little bit of backstory, because we need to understand a couple of things. First, we need to understand what situation Daniel and his friends are coming from. So Daniel, we will eventually call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their, uh, that's their Babylonian names, were kids, teenagers probably. In fact, the Bible calls them young men. Now, young men at that point were probably over the age of 13 because that was kind of the age in which was the coming to age and you became a man in Israelite culture. So probably somewhere between like 13 and 16 at the time of Daniel chapter 1. And in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, in Babylon, he besieges and conquers Jerusalem. And then he ships out the brightest uh, and, and like the most attractive young guys from Jerusalem. And this is what he would oftentimes do. Babylon would come along, they would conquer a town or civilization, a, a culture, and they would wipe them out with the exception of the brightest and the best. And he would have them brought back to Babylon and they would serve in his royal household. And he would educate them, sort of brainwashing them in the Babylonian gods and the Babylonian culture and in their language. So Daniel and his friends are three of these individuals, but we have to keep something in mind. When, a, when an enemy force came in and besieged and took over a city, a culture, one of the first orders of business was to kill, to slaughter all of the nobility, all the people of wealth, anyone of influence. So Daniel in this story is young. And he and his friends have likely seen their entire families killed, slaughtered. They are alone. And then after that, he's forced to walk into exile at the capital city at Babylon. Now, this is a 900-mile journey on foot. He likely had to walk as a child slave for four months before he arrived in Babylon to serve King Nebuchadnezzar in his royal court. So when we understand and when we look at these passages about Daniel, especially when we look at like the first four chapters, we always have to keep in the back of our mind this experience that Daniel and these three other young men had at a very young age, because it is going to, to direct a lot of their actions moving forward. This really horrifying, terrible traumatizing experience that they have early in life. Now, Daniel chapter 2 picks up about one year, about one year, give or take, after Daniel chapter 1. So we're going to look at it today, and it starts off talking about a dream. Now, I want to give a disclaimer. If you have your study guide with you, for whatever reason, I guess there's now more than one version of New Living Translation Bibles, which is ultra confusing, by the way. Why would you not give it another three-letter acronym so I know, right? So I'm going to read up here, and you can read along with me, but if you're reading along in your study guide, it's going to look different, okay, because I'm not using the same translation as in the study guide, but we remedied that problem, and that won't happen in the weeks to come. So let's look, starting in Daniel 2, uh, starting in verse 1. 
It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Now, quick pause. That seems like an overreaction to me. Does that not? That's like, wow, that's like really a one-upper in that scenario. Holy, holy cow, your houses turned to rubble too. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great or mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Let's pause here. So Daniel chapter 2 kicks off with Nebuchadnezzar having a troubling dream, and he quizzes his royal court, okay? And we're going to talk about them in a minute. But I want to point out two things from this section of Scripture that I think are important. The first is the very beginning of chapter 2. It says, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now, if this is year 2 of his reign, it's pretty safe to assume that in year 1 of his reign, he besieged Jerusalem and conquered it, Right? Because he probably didn't do year two, this wasn't taking place, and in year two he besieged it. So in the first year that he's king of Babylon, he marches four months, 900 miles with his army, he besieges and takes over Jerusalem, and then he ships Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Shadrach, which is incorrect because that's one of their Babylonian names. He ships them, I always, Mishael, is that, that I'm, I don't know. He ships them all back four months, 900 miles back to Babylon. Okay, so why is this so important? Because it's easy to assume that between Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 2, a lot of time takes place. There's, there's a, a, we think maybe Daniel's grown older for a while. He served in the king's service. He knows Nebuchadnezzar well, but that's really not the case. You see, if in his first year, Nebuchadnezzar besieged and took over Jerusalem, and then Daniel, after being his city being conquered, he had to march for four months back. And this is only year two of Nebuchadnezzar's rage, reign. It's very likely that Daniel has been in Babylon for less than a year. It's very likely that he might only be a year and a half out from his family being slaughtered. These things are very vivid in Daniel's mind in this passage and his friends' minds. And on top of that, on top of being exiled, these guys, if they were 13 to 16 years old in Jerusalem when they were exiled, when we look at this passage today, we're still looking at teenagers. I had always pictured, before I read the beginning of Daniel 2, I had always pictured that in this portion, Daniel was like 35 or 40 years old. But he's actually likely between 14 and 17. He's likely very young. Now, granted, back then, 14 to 17 is a whole heck of a lot older than 14 to 17 is today. However, back then, he was still young, right? 
He still had a very limited amount of experience in the world, and he's only been serving in the king's royal household for a short amount of time. The next thing to point out is that he's considered part of the enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers that serve the king. Now, why do you need, as a king, a bunch of weird titles that sound like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, you know? Why are you trying to, why Gandalf hanging out with you? Um, that's a good question. Well, the reason, strictly being, is that dreams and omens were vitally important. See, back then, the concept of a dream was that that was the direct link to the gods themselves. So if the gods wanted to give something to you, a message to you, oftentimes that message happened through a dream. Now, Nebuchadnezzar sort of makes himself out to be the physical representation of the gods. He's like the conduit through which all of the gods, and specifically their god, uh, communicates through. And so his dreams are very very important. So he would gather around him a group of people who were trained in the art of the Bible calls divination, which is basically the ability to determine uh, signs in the heavenly bodies and the stars, the ability to look at omens, both good and bad, and help predict the future and give the king direction based off of those things. So the king has a troubling dream and he calls in his entourage of people who help him interpret dreams. And they literally would have things called dream books then. And they would be these vast collections of different omens throughout the years that they've looked at and, and helped sort of to piece together what it might actually mean, the, the dream that the king had, what it might actually mean. But the king doesn't know what he dreamt, or if he does, he's testing. So there's like one of two things here, right? Either the king knows exactly what he dreamed, but he doesn't trust his royal court. And this was pretty common. In fact, sometimes kings would divide up their royal court and put them in separate places so they couldn't talk to one another and sort of collaborate because he felt like if they collaborated, their stories would all be the same and they might tell him something whether they knew the truth or not just to appease him. So it could be that he doesn't trust them. So he says, tell me what the dream was. Or it could be that he doesn't remember the dream at all. See, it would be considered really bad to have a vivid dream and the gods gave you this vivid dream, and then for you to forget it. It would be kind of like a curse from the gods themselves for you to get a message from them and then not remember what it is. So the passage isn't terribly clear, but it could be that Nebuchadnezzar simply doesn't remember the dream, and, and he, he wants to be rid of that horrible curse of forgetting what message the gods sent to him. Now, it doesn't really matter whether he's testing them to see if they're loyal to him or, or whether or not he forgot the dream and just needs someone to help him recall it. What matters is we now have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a deadly, deadly game because they are counted amongst the king's advisors, amongst these astrologers, enchanters, and these sorcerers. So let's pick back up now in Daniel chapter 2. It says, This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Then Arak, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon. Daniel spoke to them with wisdom intact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arak explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then 
Daniel praised the God of heaven. I want to pause here for a moment and look at three key pieces, I think three takeaways that we can pull from this particular passage. The first one is uh, how Daniel really reacted, what he did, right, initially. The next one is what he requests from his friends. And the third one is how he actually ended up acting, not just what his reaction was, but how did he actually end up acting. So Daniel is in a very bad situation. He is looking at an excruciating death. The king is literally going to have him cut to pieces. Then he's going to have his house turned into rubble. Now, why turn his house into rubble? Well, that's a really good question. For most of the king's advisors who had families, if he turned their house into rubble, he wasn't just cutting them to pieces. He was now going to be placing their families, wife, and children into poverty and possibly starvation. So he's not just threatening their lives. He's also also threatening the lives of the people that they love the most. So Daniel's in a very bad situation here because he is, like the, the decree has been issued. He is going to be cut to pieces. Going to be cut to pieces. But the simple truth here when he responds is this. When something troubling happens in our lives, we have nothing to fear when we know God. When something troubling happens in our lives, we have nothing to fear when we know God. Now, Daniel was young, but he knew something, something really important, and that is that nothing was able to happen to him, no king's decree, no execution, nothing was able to happen to him that God had not already willed and permitted. God was ultimately the one in control, and if God wanted to save him, he would, and if God didn't, he wouldn't. And Daniel knew that he wasn't really in Nebuchadnezzar's hands, he was in God's hands, So much so that the Bible actually tells us that Daniel responded with wisdom and tact. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know a lot of teenagers that are known for wisdom and tact. Have you ever met one? I have not. I've worked with a lot of teenagers. They're known for drama. They can be passionate. They're known for making terrible decisions. But I have never met one that I was like, oh, man, you know what? You have so much wisdom intact. It's just crazy how much wisdom intact you have, kid, right? No, in fact, in a life-threatening situation, most of us aren't going to respond with wisdom intact. We're going to act crazy if someone's going to cut us to pieces, right? But yet Daniel responds with wisdom intact. Why? Because he knows one central truth that we have forgotten or we often forget. It's this. If God is for us, then nothing can stand against us. If God is for us, then nothing can stand against us. Daniel knew who was on his side. He knew who his confidence was in. He knew who truly was in control of the situation. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was like one of the most powerful men in the world, if not the most powerful man in the world. He could do whatever he wanted. We're going to see that in Daniel chapter 5, that Nebuchadnezzar could do whatever he wanted. He knew that. But he also knew that God ultimately was the one who put him in the position that he was in. The second thing is this. Daniel goes to his friends And he says to them, come and plead with God for me. Plead with God together with me so that he would reveal this mystery to us. See, in hard situations, we need people to pray with us and for us. Guys, we were not built to do life alone. We were not meant to walk out this Christian journey alone. We were meant to do it with brothers and sisters. We were meant to do it in relationship with one another. The Christian faith is not a faith of isolation, it's a faith of relationship and community. We need people to pray for us, to support us, to know us deeply. 
And to be honest with you, we need some of those people to be the people inside the local church that we are a part of. Which is why we talk so often about the importance of being in a small group or being on a ministry team here at New Life. It isn't just so that you're serving or so we can just take up another night of your week or check a box off saying, we have so many people in small groups around here. No, it's because that's the way we were created to walk this faith out. We were created to walk it out in community with other followers of Jesus. That's why it's so important that we get involved for our own spiritual well-being and our own spiritual growth. The last one that I want to point out, the last thing I want to point out is how Daniel, what he did, not just how he reacted, but what did he do? You see, in this situation, and someone's threatening my life and they want to cut me to pieces, I'm thinking like, okay, I'm going to hide, I'm going to run away, I'm going to beg for my life. Maybe I'll try to lie. I don't know. Like, what am I going to? But I, I, those all seem like pretty logical solutions to me, right? But Daniel knew something. He said, we turn to God first. We need to turn to God first. And that's what Daniel did. Before he went anywhere else, he turned to God first. Now, in our lives, we oftentimes turn, when something bad happens, we, we turn to all sorts of things before we'll turn to God. Maybe we'll turn to relationships and, and this connection we have with somebody, or we'll turn to self-help techniques, or, or we'll turn to some sort of a substance. Now, I'm not saying all these things are bad, although many of you in the room with me know that some of them are really bad things to turn to. But they're not all bad. If you're sick, you may need a doctor. You may need surgery. If you're stuck in something in life, you may need to stop a bad habit or you may need to begin some new good habits. There are other solutions out there, but what I'm simply saying is we must turn to God first, not second, not fourth, not last. In our lives, when we encounter things, both good and bad, we need to turn to God first. So Daniel turns to God first, and God reveals this truth to him. Now, Daniel went with his friends, and ultimately, Daniel's the one who goes to the king. Ultimately, Daniel's the one who receives the revelation from God. And so we're going to look at what Daniel does with that further on here in Daniel chapter 2. It says this, Then Daniel went to Arach, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Instead, take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arach took Daniel to the king at once um, and said, I have found a man among the exiles of Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, who was also called Belteshazzar, that was his Babylonian name, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what was going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, although he did, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of baked clay. 
And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands, and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Just prior to this, we skipped three verses. It's a poem or a song that Daniel wrote praising God for the revelation. It's not that it's not important. It's just that that's not where we were focused today. After this, there's a long section where Daniel not only recounts what the dream was, but he also interprets it for King Nebuchadnezzar, letting him know what each piece of that statue means, showing that the gold head represented him, and and then the silver torso represented a nation that would come after him. And, And slowly but surely, he works his way down, telling about different empires that would rise and would fall, and and what empires would fall after them. Now, I'm not gonna actually read any of that today. It's another part that's very important, but it's not where we're gonna focus. And the reason is, listen, there's biblical scholars out there who have argued and looked at these points and, and what each part of this statue represents for years, thousands of years. They've tried to interpret this piece of Daniel. And I'm not gonna try to interpret it today because we're gonna be looking at a different central point from earlier in the passage. But I just wanna say one thing about it, and that's this. The most reliable interpretations of this particular prophecy, this particular, particular prediction, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, say that all of the nations represented in the statue have already risen and fallen. There are kingdoms and empires that have come to power and are no longer in power. Now, there's other understandings of this particular passage, but that is the one that's most widely accepted. So what are we going to focus on? Because we could spend the rest of this month just talking about this particular prophecy, But what I want is for us to take something really solid home with us and take it home with us and be able to live it out in the week ahead. And so what we're going to look at is the fact that Daniel was a glory giver. He wasn't a glory seeker. Daniel was a glory giver, not a glory seeker. You see, when we begin this section, what we see is is that Daniel has everything at his fingertips. He has everything there. You see, we've spent most of our time focusing on the punishment that King Nebuchadnezzar threatened if you couldn't interpret and tell him the dream. But Nebuchadnezzar also, in, chapter, in verse 6, promises rewards, rewards, honor, and gifts. It's great honor, actually, for anybody who can give a good interpretation. Now, in Babylon, this is one of the most powerful nations that ever existed. It's also one of the most pagan Daniel has everything at his fingertips, everything. His future in Babylon is set. Gifts, rewards, and honor from King Nebuchadnezzar would last him the rest of his life. His future lies before him. He has the interpretation right here in his head. God has revealed it to him. All he needs to do is take credit for it. All that he has to do is say, I know what your dream means, and he wouldn't really be lying because he does know, and then all he has to do is tell Nebuchadnezzar, but he doesn't do that. 
In fact, quite the opposite happens. He says, I don't have any more wisdom than anybody else alive. This doesn't really have anything to do with me at all. In fact, this is a dream that there's a God out there who gave it to you. In fact, he is the God. This God reveals mysteries, and he has given you this dream to look forward into the future. I'm kind of a conduit. I'm just here to tell you about it, but I'm not important at all. I'm not an important part of this equation in any way. Can you imagine a 14-year-old who has unlimited wealth and power and pleasure at his fingertips and he willingly gives it away in order to give glory to God rather than to seek glory for himself. He has all the glory and the splendor of Babylon at his fingertips. He just has to reach out and take it. Yet, he says, it doesn't have anything to do with me. God has given this to you. It's a relationship between you and between him. Daniel gives every bit of credit for his revelation to God and takes no credit for himself. Daniel gives every bit of credit for his revelation to God and takes no credit for himself. Now, when I'm thinking about being a glory seeker or a glory giver, I think about my own life. And oftentimes I fall into this trap in small ways. You know, I've never been uh, the person who revealed a dream to the king of Babylon. I've never had unlimited treasure and wealth and pleasure at my fingertips. But I have had people who've come to me and said things like, Mark, I'm struggling with this. I know that you struggled with this. Can you tell me how you got out of it? Can you tell me what you did? And the answer is always that God gave me freedom. The answer is always that Jesus delivered me. The answer is always God. But I find myself oftentimes feeling like that's not a good enough answer. And instead, I talk about all the steps that I took in order to help me overcome this thing in my life. What was about God who gave me freedom becomes more about me, and I slip from being a glory giver to a glory seeker. It can happen like that so quickly and so easily because we are so tempted to take credit for the things that God has done. See, time has a way of distorting our memories and making us take credit for what only God could have done in our lives. Time has a way of distorting our memories and making us take credit for what only God could have done in our lives. We have a tendency to at one time say this was God's mercy, and over time we begin to say it was our own hard work. Originally, God changed my life. Eventually, it's I did the hard work to change my life. We can slip because of time and the way it distorts the way we remember things. We can easily slip from glory givers into glory seekers. But this wasn't what Daniel was. And he knew that if he gave glory to God, God could do something that he would never be able to do. Because the truth of the matter is, when we give glory to God, it opens up opportunities for God to do something that we would never be able to do by taking credit for it ourselves. Sometimes it seems backwards and it seems opposite, but when we give credit to God, when we give glory to God for the things he's done in our lives, it opens up opportunities for him to change others. We see that in the end here, the book of Daniel chapter two. It says this, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, administrators 
administrators over the providence of Babylon, and Daniel himself remained at the royal court. The most powerful man in the world at the time, the man who governed and ruled one of the most pagan cultures in all of human history, falls down on his knees before a teenager from an exiled city. And he says, your God is the God of gods. He's the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. Now, if Daniel had taken credit, he would have probably got all the rewards that are talked about here. He probably would have made a high office in the kingdom. He probably would have had a palace. He probably would have had wealth. But I can guarantee you one thing that wouldn't happen. Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler at the time, would not have recognized the one true and only God for who he was. In this story is the kickoff for an ongoing strange relationship that we're going to be seeing between Nebuchadnezzar and God from now through Daniel 4. See, it connects. You've got to keep coming because you've got to hear about this relationship between now and Daniel 4 that the two of them have. The Nebuchadnezzar and God kind of going back and forth. Guys, when we give credit to God, when we glorify him with our lives and stop our glory-seeking ways, stop building our own kingdom, stop focusing on number one, stop worrying about ourselves and our own renown and our own fame and our own wealth, when we stop doing that and we just start simply giving glory to God for the things that he's done in his life, it opens up an opportunity for God to do amazing things. Things that we never thought would ever be able to happen. See, when we become glory givers, the Holy Spirit has a chance to work in incredible ways that can never happen when we remain glory seekers. When we become glory givers, the Holy Spirit has a chance to work in incredible ways that can never happen if we remain glory seekers. So my challenge for us this week is to go out and be glory givers. Because guys, that's what we were created for. That's really our commitment today. Our commitment is I will put God first because I was created to give him glory. One of the key words in that is created. You were made for it. That's your purpose. Over the years, one of the questions I've got asked more than any other from teenagers and adults alike is what's my purpose? How do I determine my calling? And my response now is pretty much always the same. I can only relate to my own life. So I say something like, listen, I, I was created to give God glory. That's it. That's my only purpose. That's the reason that I'm here. It's to glorify God. Now, currently, I do that as a pastor, but one day I may not be a pastor. But not being a pastor doesn't change my primary purpose. My primary purpose is to give glory to God. And I don't know what you do professionally. I don't know what you do for hobbies. I don't know what you're passionate about. But whatever it is, those things are tools to an end because you were created to give God glory, all of the other stuff are tools so that we can learn to be glory givers rather than being glory seekers. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I pray, Father, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would enable us in everything we do to give glory to you to give credit to you and to show clearly what you have done in our lives. Pray these things in your name. Amen.